Hey everyone, and welcome to Theana Money, where we seek to help the good man leave an inheritance to his children's children. This is Jeremy Collins, the host of Theana Money. So this week I have a great interview planned for you all that you won't want to miss. It is with my friend Matt Belleville, and we covered all kinds of different things, but the general thrust of it was caring for the poor as praise to God and the biblical view of tithes, which is something interesting. And I'm actually still thinking through all this stuff he talked about. I think coming more to view things the way he is, as I'm thinking about a biblical view of tithes and how that might not be the way that I have viewed tithes for the last several years. I'm coming to what's probably a bit more of a theonomist view of the tithes now. So make sure you all listen to the rest of this episode. There's a lot of great content in this interview. And also, I just wanted to say that this is dropping the day after Thanksgiving. Originally, I was thinking about maybe having some kind of Thanksgiving special where we would talk about the Thanksgiving offerings in the Old Testament. But this is just such a good interview. I couldn't wait another week to drop it. I had to drop it as soon as I could. So maybe next year, For the day after Thanksgiving episode, we'll do a special on the Thanksgiving offerings in the Old Testament. But this year, you're getting this great interview with Matt Belleville about tithes and caring for the poor and all kinds of different things. And before we jump into the interview, I just want to ask you all again to please like or heart or whatever the podcast episode. Give it a rating and review. Comment on it, follow Theana Money on social media, share the social media posts, and tell your friends about it, especially this episode. I think there's a lot of good content in this episode, though. So, this is actually an episode that might be my most personally shared episode by the time all is said and done. And so, with that, let's jump into the interview. Hey, everyone. I'm here today with Matt Belleville. He is a tent maker over in Malaysia. So I'll let him give a bit more of an introduction about himself. Yeah. So thanks for having me on, Jeremy. So just a little bit about me. I'm married, have two daughters that we're in the process of going through all the crazy stuff to adopt them because they're stateless. So we're pretty much planted in Malaysia for now. My wife and I have a heart for really building up Christian communities in like your locale, where you're located, the people around you, and essentially building up godly societies within your neighborhoods. And so that's largely what we've done, no matter where we've served, whether that was in the U.S. or northern Iraq or Malaysia. Um, I've written some books and I've spoken at two of the cruciform conferences. So uh, that's just a, a short summary. That's really cool. I love that theme of trying to be involved locally and have influence for the church in your local area that you're talking you're talking about there, kind of like what the Wilsons are doing in Moscow or what Michael Foster is doing in Batavia, Ohio. Right. Yeah, I actually used to live not too far from Batavia. Sometime that I'm back there visiting people, I want to run over to Michael Foster's church and check it out. Oh, yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah. Um, and then that actually gets us into what you, we were going to talk about today, that your book that I just read this morning, that's really good, gets into this idea of really building into your local area and the church doing things that the church should be doing. But in America, especially in the last century, the state has been taking on more and more things that biblically the church should be the one doing. So I'll let you talk about that for a little bit. Yeah. So, I mean, like our circles of Christianity, you know, there's different names that get thrown around, whether it's theonomy or reconstruction or faith for all of life or Kyperion. And largely 
a question that usually comes up as people start learning it is what's it do, right? Because the, it's something that we all love to talk about. And, you know, we throw around 200, 300 page books uh, and it's like, hey, can you give me an introduction to this? And we're like, yeah, sure. Bonson's Theonomy and Christian Ethics. And it's like, that's a, that's a, that's a big, that's a big workload for someone to get an introduction. Right. Yeah. If you, even if you read 10 pages a day, that'd take you like a month or two to read that book. Right. Yeah. And not that it isn't worth it, but when you're trying to get people who are, how do you want to say it, on the edge or are at least open to hearing a different, a different opinion, or even are against it but you want to give them something that's like, just read this and uh, tell me what you, tell me what you hate about it. Right. There's, there wasn't really anything that I saw that was like a really good size for it. So that's initially what went behind the book, your neighbor and praising God was I want to give something that someone could read in a bathroom break. And they get a good idea of what faith for all of life Christianity looks like or reconstructionist Christianity. And as I, that thought, as that desire was there, I thought there was no better text to go to than Psalm 146, which just goes through what God does and understanding how he sets prisoners free, takes care of the blind. He lifts up the oppressed, the bowed down. He loves the righteous and the sojourner and the widow and the, and the fatherless. What you understand is as God's vice regents, as his representatives on the earth, a, a part of him actually taking care of these real categories of people is us taking care of these real categories of people. Because we like to look at the Psalms and often go like, oh yeah, sin. We're bowed down because of our sin or we're oppressed because of our sin, you know, or we're sojourners on the earth type of themes and we spiritualize them without taking the time and realizing that, wait, these are like legitimate people in our community. And yeah, those spiritual illusions are definitely true, but God literally takes care of them. And it's largely in history through the hands of his people. Yeah. I thought that was a good point in your book because you at one point were talking about God takes care of these people, but he does it through Christians. It's not like once someone hits a certain poverty level, God restarts the manna from the 40 years in the wilderness for that person. Like God doesn't mm -hmm. just drop manna out of the sky for people that are poor and hungry. So mm -hmm. that means he, we have to do it in some other way that God has ordained. That's like how with medical care, God sometimes will do a miraculous healing, but generally God when he heals people, does it through the means of medicine, doctors, or mm -hmm. various other treatments like me. I drink right. a lot of tea, so I'll drink echinacea tea and elderberry tea and stuff like that to help me get better. Yep, That's a non-miraculous way that God helps my body heal. Right. And so there's a similar thing when it comes to helping the poor, the downtrodden, the sick, things like that. And so mm -hmm. that's where we have to get into, okay, how do we carry out God's will in helping these people? Should it be the government doing it like is the case in socialist nations and is more and more mm. the case in America, like what FDR did a lot to institute in America with his new deal? Or should it be families and churches doing all of these things? And if you've listened to this podcast before, you know, I think it should be mm -hmm. the families and the churches. I talked about that in the episode a few months ago. Caesar, care for the poor and socialism. And I don't know if you listened to that episode, Matt, but I was responding yes. to an argument I saw. Sorry, what was that? Yes. Yeah. I did a bit of listen. Okay. Yeah. So for anyone that didn't, someone said that the Bible commands us to care for the poor, which includes Caesar or president, prime minister, king, whatever term you want to put in there. Mm -hmm. And he can only care for the poor by taxes because he makes all his income from taxes. So therefore welfare and socialism are biblical. Well, that's a pretty bad argument and you can listen to that episode to find out why, but we're also talking a bit about that here because the mm -hmm. Bible doesn't say the government should care for the poor. It says that the other two spheres of sovereignty, the family and the church should be the ones caring for the poor. So I'll let you talk about that in your book a little bit more and how you get practical with that in your book. Yeah, exactly. I think what you have is you have 
when you see the function of the Levites in the Old Testament, a, a lot of times when you look at them, you we think of in the temple, right? In the temple serving. But that was only a minority of the Levites. The majority of Levites were in all the different cities and towns. And they functioned, they were essentially the educators of Christian culture. And they took care of things like uh, they would adjudicate court cases. So they were Levites, right? They were, it was an ecclesiastical role in a sense, but it also was much more. They acted as judges. They acted uh, as purveyors of art. They educated in the synagogues. They dealt with welfare, right? The distribution of the poor tithes, which were actually collected and given in the cities where people resided. They weren't centralized uh, to Jerusalem. Um, so what you see is there is a Levitical function that we miss. Actually, there's, I wish it'd be better to say there's multiple Le Levitical functions that we miss. Uh, and where we see that translate into the New Testament is with the deacons. Uh, because the diaconate is essentially the one-to-one -one of the Levites. And even when you want to go to the Jerusalem temple, right, the only Levitical function that's gone is the ones that serve directly under the high priest in the temple doing atonement and the various sacrifices. So you have the New Testament Levites and the deacons. And so that's where you have the church doing things like welfare. You can look at the diaconate in Geneva, a controversial subject, but, you know, they even ordained hospitalers, which were female deacons, and they only did welfare, only taking care of the poor, only taking care of the sick. And then there were male deacons and they were the ones that tend to, they were the ones that would um, essentially funnel the funds collected through the alms and tithes and the free will offerings. And so you have one, a ecclesiastical structure for the care of the poor built into God's law across the Old Testament and the New Testament. Then, if you look at the Old Testament law, you see that most of the care for the poor was in the family. It's not even, should it be, you know, can it be, is it possible? It's literally like, that is what God commanded. And you have gleanings. You have the different rules when it came to doing the poor tithe uh, every third year. You had poor loans, right? All of those things were the functions of private, non-ecclesiastical individuals. So the main brunt of the care of the poor actually comes from families and individuals. And I think when we start to recover just how much emphasis is put there and then put on the Levite deacon, we start to see like, oh, it is possible because it's ingrained into God's law and God's law is a reflection of his character, right? The Puritans said that the law is a transcript of God's character. Yeah, that's really good. When you were talking about Levites in the Old Testament, I was already making the point in my head you ended up going to thinking about deacons in the New Testament, how deacons and the Levites correspond to each other. That's really good. And yeah, you can right. see that throughout the last 2000 years with orphanages, hospitals, Mm -hmm. colleges and universities, all those things that basically were started by Christians. The, even some of the concepts of these things were more or less started by Christians. That's why even today you still have so many hospitals that's Saint this, Saint that hospital. Yeah. And if you actually look at when the office of deacon was established, and you know how we like to say fulfill and we understand what Jesus meant on the Sermon on the Mount when he came to fulfill the law, we understand that as Theonomous Reconstructionist as he came to establish the law, right? To reaffirm it. So it's like trionomy because it's the third giving of the law, I guess we could say, right? When Jesus is on the Mount and what ends up happening is he says, uh, I came to fulfill the law. We understand that that Greek word actually means to establish. And so when I say, we established the office of deacon. It's actually a renewal or established the, yeah, established the office of deacon. It's actually a renewal 
of, of, of the office of the Levite. Reestablishing the Levite in light of the new covenant, you'd say? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I think that actually goes into the language of Greek because a lot of times for new covenant or when Jesus says, I give a new commandment, the word is kaimos, which actually means fresh. And the connotation to it is actually it's connected to what came before. So it's not like, hey, brand spicky spanky new. It's actually a new administration of what has been in the past. And so that's what happens when the deacons come on to the scene. And what you have is really interesting because, right, all of a sudden there's this murmuring in, uh, in the camp, quote unquote, right, because of the care of the Gentile, the Greek-speaking widows and the Jewish widows and them feeling like they weren't being cared for, right? That's a very dangerous situation. You, we have tons of examples of murmuring, destroying communities, not only in our time, but even in Israel, right? Murmuring was something God dealt with, with a very heavy hand. In response to that, the solution was the, the function of the deacons for welfare but it's really interesting, and I find this connection to the deacon Levite uh, to be very strong here is because in Acts 6-7, it talks about many priests saw the function of the deacon and became obedient to the faith. So when the priests saw that this wasn't a whole new religion, but this was actually faithful to their calling, it moved them, right? Of course, it's the Holy Spirit, God's sovereignty, election, but that moved them into obedience to the faith because it, the concern of God did not change. Uh, they saw their function being fulfilled in the deacon. This just gave me an interesting thought. Now, maybe I'm reaching a bit here and you can tell me if this is going too far, but when you were talking about that murmuring, I think you were doing that intentionally to make a reference back to the 40 years in the wilderness with Israel. And when, when Israel was murmuring in the wilderness, God supernaturally gave them manna in the early days of Israel. If we count the start of Israel, when they break out of mm -hmm. Egypt, not with the patriarchs, and then in the early days of the church in that first couple of years after Pentecost, the people are murmuring over the widows getting food and things like that. And God doesn't supernaturally provide food. God gives them the deacons to using a normal means, provide food for them, which gets back to what I was saying a little bit ago about God doesn't supernaturally care for the poor by just giving them manna like he did with Israel. He cares for the poor mm -hmm. by having Christians at the family and church level provide for them. And then nations will do that in a way God hasn't ordained by trying to have the state care for the poor. Right. And it, the fascinating thing, too, is when you think about it, undergirding natural is something completely supernatural, because in order for our food, like we, you talked about taking elderberry, right? When you talked about it with your tea, I take elderberry, too, in a capsule form, um, just as a more natural way to take care of health. And the fascinating thing about it is, is if God did not want that to be effective in your body, it wouldn't be even though naturally it ought to be right. Yeah. So even there, it, it depends on the empowering of God and something very interesting uh, that David Chilton talks about in his book, power in the blood, which was written, written in the middle of the AIDS pandemic, you know, uh, is he talks about when Jesus is in the wilderness and he says, uh, turn these stones uh, to bread, right? Satan says that to Jesus and Jesus says, um, Man cannot live off of bread alone, but every word that proceeds from God's mouth. That's referencing back to the provision in the context of the provision of manna being referenced to specifically in Deuteronomy. And what's really interesting, though, is that reference is back to something very physical. And what he says is it's actually wrong of us to go like, oh, this is primarily about God's word, like knowing your Bible and remembering it and keeping it close to your heart. What it actually is saying is like God's word empowers our life. And so Jesus is saying, I'm not going to do what you want because that would be disobedient to God where God is the one who gives health to my bones. That's the point of Christ there in referencing the physical provision of, 
manna in the Old Testament. And so to tie that into the current conversation, when we read about God being the one to provide for all these people, it's not non-supernatural for him to act through his representatives because the sacrifice of people who used to be dead in sin and had hard hearts caring for others is completely supernatural. Yeah, that's good. That's like, I don't know how many different pastors and theologians have said that there's more creative work to the glory of God when he regenerates a sinner's heart than there was when he created the world to begin with. Mm-hmm. Yep. Most definitely. Yeah. Um, going back to Outerberry, I just thought of another thing with that from what you were saying. Outerberry also shows how God not just not only gives us things in creation that can help our body, but then we also have to like study it and figure out how it works. Cause if you just eat elderberries by themselves, it's actually really bad for you. Like, I think they're actually mm. poisonous. I don't think they can, I don't know. I've never looked into it. So I don't think they can kill you, but I know they're like really bad for you and are poisonous to eat elderberries. And then if you dry the elderberries and then steep it to make a tea or turn it into a syrup or something like that, it's actually really good for your immune system. Yep. So God, not just, he not only gave us elderberries to help us, we actually had to figure out how they work a little bit and do stuff to them for them to benefit us because elderberries as is freshly picked off are actually not good for you. Yeah. And basically, um, in, um, Kuiper's little book, uh, called wisdom and wonder, which is essentially on the science and liberal arts. It's very small. You can get it on Kindle for really cheap. And, uh, he talks about that scientific investigation of extracting the purpose out of creation is an exposition of God's thoughts. Uh, and so that's essentially what we have to do with things to realize, uh, oh, this thing that would hurt me is actually really, really good for me if this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just crazy when you think about, right, that we want to be, it, it's like functional Gnosticism uh, because we want to have faith that God will provide and God will do these things. And it's like, yeah, but you're totally unwilling to put your hands and your resources where your faith is. Yeah. It's like, if you're uh, overweight and diabetic and you say, God, please heal me of this while you also eat like a dozen donuts every day, that's mm -hmm. you wanting God to do a supernatural work, despite your not doing work to keep up with yourself. Now, if you're overweight and diabetic and you're not diabetic because you're just naturally that way it's a diabetic diabetes from being overweight then you right. pray to god to help heal you of this and then you change your diet and start exercising and do all the other things then yeah mm -hmm. there's a huge difference between the two one's presuming on god's kindness to do something miraculous because you're not willing to work and the other is willing to work and praying that god blesses your work yeah exactly and, and that's where trying to get into the very practical part of this book, because it's clear throughout, right? It, it, at the end and at the beginning, it kind of, the bookends of Psalm 146 is do not trust in princes, right? And the, or sorry, it's praise God, praise God. And in the middle, it's don't trust in princes. And so what you have is praising God as the main theme there encapsulating it and then you have the the not trusting in princes is kind of being the fulcrum there and what that means is it, the practically it goes into trusting in the state to care for the poor and actually bullinger is a very good example of failing in this because bullinger um this is actually an interesting thing when you get into that whole debate on you know women beacons and whatever is like oh calvin and bullinger believed it but bullinger it doesn't matter if he actually believed in it because bullinger was fine with the office of deacon being done away with because he saw their function understanding it was a practical welfare function largely he understood it as being fulfilled in the state in his time that's interesting <laughs> yeah and, and, but, but the Psalm says, don't trust in princes and yeah, then says, God exactly. does these things and we are his representative. Right. And so that's 
when I really want, I really dig uh, like dug in to your neighbor and praising God, because wanting to show that it's not impossible. It's, it's, you can do these things. You can help these people. And so what I did is I ended up taking the categories of people that, um, we get in Psalm 146 that God helps. So you have the, uh, let's see, you have the oppressed, hungry, prisoners, blind, bowed down, sojourners, widow, and fatherless. And for each one of those, I gave somewhere between two and four applications of how you could do that within your local community. And then some of them go into detail uh, further just to help move it along. Uh, and then what I did, cause I felt like, oh, I still feel like this is going to be hard because, you know, when you give specific applications, it's really easy for readers to not do to them because it's like, it doesn't actually, it doesn't specifically fit my context. Right. And so it's a way that a reader can escape from it. So then what I did is I actually created a free PDF that I just kind of threw online that actually walks people through the process of developing a Christian application of caring for these types of people within their community, how to identify problems, resources, who's doing what, where um, already, um, what's the networking look like, why are certain people not helped by certain ministries within adjacent services, and then you can really start to put effectively, instead of trying to, you know, shotgun spread your service, you can laser point it and be like, this is where it would matter for, uh, as George Grant would call it, dominion by service. Yeah. I think I'm still a little bit stuck on, well, let's do away with an office of the church because the state's doing it now. That seems yeah. like about the definition of statism. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't agree with it, but, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, uh, it just came up when I, when I was writing my other book called the, um, hands that will restore humanity and essentially um, talking about how it's God through his people. And it's dealing more with like historical examples where this is largely dealing with a very short exposition and then a bunch of application for like the comp modern ones that you could do. And of course that gets into the question of how do you fund these type of things, because essentially what you're doing is you're operating as a social order within a pre-existing uh, faulty social order. So what were you wanting to cover next? I mean, so I can go into essentially how I see. So if people want to see these applications, they can get the book. They're all in there. I don't want to read every single one of them because there's over 20. But I just want to encourage people that it's totally possible through God's patterns he laid out in his law to fund a social order, a godly social order where you're at now. And largely they, the way I understand it, and this is my, literally my whole life was changed by reading Tithing and Dominion by Rush Juni, when he essentially shows the three tithes and their applicability to today. So you have uh, the Levitical tithe. And the Levitical tithe went to the Levites. And because it functioned as a salary to the Levites, they tithed on it as well. So the Levites actually tithed their tithe to the Aaronic priesthood. So what ends up happening is you, you know, you get your income, your tithe, and then you send it to people who are doing Le Levitical functions, or you could say diaconal functions. So that could be education, welfare, the arts. It could be health, right? So maybe it's a cash clinic that opens up uh, for the Christian community. So that way they don't have to deal with oppressive uh, insurance, you know, and maybe they also can't afford something like Samaritan's Purse or one of those services. So they need something like a cash clinic for one-off things. Uh, you could do that for to the doctors that are running there, volunteering their time, or however the setup is. You can send it to, uh, you know, 
people working overseas trying to plant churches. You can send it to pastors. You can send it to your local church. But essentially, the Levitical, the Levitical tithe is what most people think of when they think of the tithe normally and understand that it goes to the institutional church, whereas the Levites were largely decentralized. And you gave to you would give to Levites individually. And you would even give to people who weren't Levites in the case of Elisha. The man actually comes from another city just to find Elijah and gives him the offering. And then Elijah uses it to feed the other prophets who are with him. And so you even kind of see that the principle there is that the Levitical function is what qualifies somebody to receive the Levitical tithe. So what you have there is you have the building of your social order, all the things you need, education, welfare, health, right? The main stuff. And that's funded through Christians, Levitical tithe. Then you have the celebration tithe. And that's, you know, wherever you are, sell your stuff, buy wine, pay for food, celebrate, be thankful with God, uh, be thankful for God with God's people. Essentially, God demands that you take a vacation. And then when you come to the third tithe, which is the poor tithe, that would be a third tenth on that third year. And that goes to the worthy poor, meaning someone who's not poor because they're lazy, but because of providence, they are in destitute poverty. There's no way that they could get out without outside assistance. And you give it as a one-time thing. Uh, so they don't get used to slavery lending uh, because that long-term welfare lending kind of creates a slave mentality and also can engender in people uh, sort of um, an expectancy of outside assistance. Yeah. And so, so sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, and so with those three things, you're covering the main functions of social order. And so when you get a group of families with that income, those collective tithes, if done strategically and networking together in your locale, becomes a powerhouse. And why don't you go to make your point? Because then I was just going to give like an, our experience, like more experiential story. Yeah. Um, I was just going to say there that Thomas Sowell, no, though not a believer, has done a lot of work mm -hmm. into how welfare actually harms people because of the things you were saying there yeah and then uh, another thing i was just thinking about you had mentioned that this tithe would not just support the levites or today the deacons pastors mm -hmm. things like that but it would support other things like you mentioned specifically the arts and that made me think about something i've been thinking about a lot recently uh, so i was just introduced by an ad robles video to uh, conley owens and his dorian principle i don't know if you've heard of it no no i missed so, that one yeah, um, his book is free online. And so okay. it's not super long. I think they said it's like 130 pages. I want to read it. And I'm really thinking about in a future episode, bringing him on to talk about it. But basically, it's this idea that it is, it should be a mark of a false teacher that they charge for the things they provide, like think the prosperity gospel preachers, that mm. gospel ministry should be supported financially by people coming alongside you, not you charging. And that doesn't mm -hmm. just mean something like a pastor charging for people to come to church. We know no one does that. And if anyone does, then it's obvious there are some sort of false teacher. <laughs> but he said that also applies to things like books and even conferences and stuff. And he said that mm -hmm. we shouldn't charge. If a book is about the gospel, the book should be given away for free because that would be charging for gospel ministry. Rather, you should be willing to write the book for free, maybe crowdfund before you start the book. And then after mm -hmm. you give, after you write the book, give it away for free and say, if anyone wants to basically back support me for the time I spent writing this book, then go ahead and do that. But you give the book out for free, whether or not people are willing to give you money for it. Now, if it's a, some other book, then sure, go ahead and charge for it. Basically, what he was saying is just the free market shouldn't apply to gospel ministry. It should be crowdfunding, personal sponsorship, or money from the tithes to make that go along with what you're saying, not mm. from charging for books and things like that. He said, charging for your book on the gospel should be how we're able to tell the difference between a false teacher and a good teacher, which doesn't work right now because 
both of them are charging for books. Right. Yeah. And that's really fascinating. I know one interesting, maybe you want to say point of contention, or just, it would be really cool to uh, have that in a dialogue with him is when he tells the, um, his disciples to go out right into the Mm -hmm. cities. And basically the, the litmus test of them being blessed by that ministry was if they financially supported them by feeding them and letting them stay. Yeah. And if they didn't, you leave. Yeah. So I think Conley Owens would say that would be the people coming alongside and trying to support the gospel ministry, not the person charging. Basically, he's not standing at the gate of the city and saying, if you don't give me money, I'm not coming in. He's coming in and doing the work and waiting for people to support him. I don't know. I'm still seeing what the response is. Sorry, what? Yeah. Seeing what the response is. Yeah. Whereas instead of saying, setting up a screen, yeah, no, it's really interesting. So, and and I'm not necessarily saying it's wrong. It's just like, yeah, uh, it's an interesting thought. And I, um, I know other people, I know of other people who have done similar things with their ministries. You know, I, I'm thinking of like Philip Kaiser with his books. You can always get them free, like from LearnPub. Hmm. Uh or Gary you North, know. most of his books are free on his website. Yep. Oh yeah. Yeah. All of them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and that's what I use my Levitical time for. I mean, I, so like, this is, this is me uh, trying to show the practicality of it. Right. So when we first learned about it, these tithes, um, we were like, okay, we're convinced and we're doing it. And we were barely profitable as a family. Like, you know, we, you could probably say we were the family that would be allowed to sacrifice two doves. We were pretty poor. I think like $50 a week was for all, all four of us, my daughters, my wife and I, while living in a foreign country. And, um, what ends up happening is we were faithful. We try to be faithful in every area of life. We're keeping the tithes. And as the years go by, it's largely staying the same. (laughs) And we're like, oh man, you know, and, you know, Philip Kaiser, he also teaches the three tides and he talks about instead of doing the third 10th on the third year, instead of adding up, you know, what do you want to say? A 3.33 repeating percent tithe every month, right? And just applying it across instead of all once in the third year. And so my wife and I, we decided like, no, we're going to follow the pattern and we're going to trust that by that third year, God is going to bless us. So that way we can give a greater amount to the poor than if we were giving pittance the whole time. And so we get to that third year and that, that is actually the year where we made the most income in our poor tithe was northwards of like $3,000. And we were able to help Christian businessmen in Vietnam because the lockdowns, things local was actually very difficult to to do um, in application because our lockdowns were nuts in Malaysia. So we gave to Christian businessmen who essentially lost their business because of all the lockdowns there. Uh, And they're trying to support their family. They're like little hawker stalls on the street. So we gave poor tithe to about 10 of them. We, and then we gave to refugees that we work with here that came from the Rohingya people that came from Myanmar when they were slaughtered, you know, five, six years ago by the government and they fled here illegally. So they're stateless. And, uh, we were able to help widows who had like multiple children and, and one, one father whose wife died and he had six kids and essentially the, amount of power behind obeying God in your capital is really amazing, especially when you can have a group of Christians working at it together. Yeah. I like that you didn't sound like some kind of prosperity preacher being like, we started doing this. And then like two weeks later, we were millionaires. (laughs) Oh no, man. They're like, we're like, you know, poor for two years. It was rough. (laughs) Uh, but we were like, you know what, we're just going to obey and, and, and believe that God will bless it, you know, in due time. Yeah. That's really yeah. good. So your 
every year tithe to your church. Then you mm-hmm. said uh, second tithe every. Now the second tithe every year. How would we do that? Since we're not living in Old Testament Israel, like our our government looks different than them. Our government is yep, yep. a lot more oppressive than them. Right, and so the second tithe isn't didn't go to Israel. It was used for the fests, the feasts of coming together, and people bought on their individual things. Oh yeah, you mentioned that. I remember. Yeah, and the rich and the rich were actually expected to remember the poor. So actually, the richer you were, it wasn't legislated as like you had to do it, but it was legislated that, you know, you ought to do this, uh, in, in the law. And so, you know, what you'd have there is you'd have celebrations and get togethers. You could even use it for communion. If like, depending on how you do it, right. Maybe you have communion agape feast style and it's like in the middle of a meal. And so the whole thing, it becomes a big festival, uh, when you do communion, or, you know, the church potluck or the summer conference, and you bring along the poor in the community, you know, just to come and enjoy it, right? Because it's actually, it actually says to remember the sojourner, the foreigner. So even in the celebration tithe, you're including people who are not God's covenant people. And essentially, it's a practical tool of evangelism in look it's evangelism through joy. Look at the joy we receive through God's provision. And that is the evangelistic function of the celebration tithe. And so you'd use it essentially whenever to celebrate together God's blessings. That's cool. Yeah. So you have one tithe that goes to supporting the church, another one that goes towards Mm -hmm. celebratory feasts. Mm -hmm. Yep is interesting in making communion be uh, not just a little like half ounce cup of grape juice or wine and a little like gluten-free wafer of bread. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, 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 uh, because we were a home church over here, uh, what we ended up doing is we would do a, the agape feast, you know, style where it was in the middle of a meal. And so the whole meal would be paid for by the celebration tithe, you know, and we get really good bread really tasty wine and a bunch of other good stuff. You know, it was always the best meal that my family ate. I really like that concept. Yeah. And just think about the blessing, right? Because we're under stress. We're overseas. We can't leave this country because our daughters are stateless. You know, they probably would have been sold into the sex slavery or organ slavery. Uh, There was agents trying to buy them before we met them. Uh, and the hospital was lying about their health condition to dissuade agents from coming and trying to get the mom to sell the baby, you know? And so we get them, we're already like very low income, even for here. And that's a lot of stress. And then you have two twin babies, diapers, baby food formula, right? lots of stress. And then the, the gracious, the gracious provision of God to have a, you know, vacation in celebration of his good gifts of his graciousness to you. Like that was such a respite Mm -hmm. in the midst of largely not having a lot. I have a question with the every third year tithe for the poor. Yeah. So in ancient Israel, and then that would correspond to how we would try to fulfill it today, would yeah. everyone be on the same three-year cycle? Because if everyone was on the same one and not alternating, that sounds like how you'd end up with the poor having more than they know what to do with on this one year and then trying to not starve to death for the next two. Yeah. So the function of, so to go to really get to the application today, you want to go to the function of that time when the calendar was you know, congealed together, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, everybody's doing it. And so the way that it would, the way that it functions essentially is the idea is it's training. It is a pedagogical tool to train the poor to actually lift themselves up. You know, like we like to say, lift yourselves up by lift yourself up by your bootstraps. Right. 
what it does is it trains them. They have to be providentially minded and, and, and future focused and not present consumption minded, because here's the thing, the tithe giver and the tithe recipient are both responsible to God and open to his judgment for failure. The tithe payer, the, the person who gives the tithe, whether it's the Levitical tithe, the celebration tithe, or the poor tithe, the tithe payer, he gives it in a way that is bad stewardship, is liable for God's sanctions. So if this person gives to somebody who's not destitute poor or who is, who, who is not going to use it well and is going to waste God's money, then that person is a foolish, non-discerning person in God's covenant, right? And that's why this was actually a public giving. So the, the giver needed to be discerning about who he gave it to. The poor person, they had to be, be they had to see like the Proverbs 31 woman who looks to the horizon and laughs. They had to have an optimistic view of the future and to plan for it because if they squandered it, they would not be liable to receive the poor tithe again the next time around and would likely not to receive poor loans because of their character and would likely not be, receive permission to go and glean on someone's property. Because remember, yeah, they were commanded to allow gleaning, but clearly in the example of Boaz, you got to vet who would glean still on your property. Yeah. And so the this person, so to your point, that is actually a function of that tithe, is that very point uh, that if they if if they waste it right the the covenant sanctions would be on the poor as well as uh, the giver that's really cool that reminds me of something i heard from paul washer not too long ago that when he was a young man he knew a few guys that were pretty poor struggling to make ends meet so he let them stay with him and he thought he was doing this really great thing, letting these guys that otherwise might end up in their car or on the street stay with him for free. And then he mm -hmm. said he started to notice when these guys were staying with him that he'd leave for work and they'd be either still asleep or like watching TV or something. And then he'd come back from work and they're still laying around the house, not doing anything. And he's like, what's with these guys? Like, they don't seem to really be trying to get a job that way they can move out of my house. And then he said his mm -hmm. pastor talks to him and he's expecting his pastor to be like, Hey, I'm really happy for you, what you're doing, trying to help out these guys. And now his pastor rebuked him and said, you are enabling them to be lazy and not productive by giving them a place to stay for free when they're trying to get out of work. Mm -hmm. Yep, definitely. And, and to allow, because everything is God's property, right? You know, yeah, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, but he also owns every meal you consume. So to steward it towards sin, which would be enabling others to laziness or creating slavish mentalities in people is judgment, right? It's wicked. And that and the, the tithes are designed to not allow for it, right? Because when you give the tithe, you can give it to your local church. You can give it to a specific officer in your local church. You could give it to someone who's doing Levitical function outside of an institutional church. And the thing that that does is it creates a, an, a, a, essentially a system of accountability for actual service that produces things for God's kingdom. Um, basically, there's no slackers allowed. Yeah, that's really good. So what would you say with that um, poor tax then every three years being used for yeah. education, not just food and places and shelter and stuff like that. Like what if you gave a poor person a hundred dollars and he wanted to use that hundred dollars to say, do Skillshare for a year and learn some stuff at that point. So your responsibility was in the giving the entrusting of the character, mm -hmm. uh, trusting the character of the person you gave the money to the actual stewarding of the money is up to the recipient. 
So if they wanted to use that for planning out their meals to stretch out long, long into the future, to buy some skill training things, that, that would be their choice and they totally could, right? And of course, you know, you could always offer assistance. Hey, just so you know, if you want to pick up this trade, I know this local business guy and he'll totally let you come and intern there. He'll pick you up and he'll teach you how to repair a car or she'll teach you how to be a seamstress or, you know, whatever. Yeah, that's really cool. Well, I think we've been going for almost an hour. So is there anything you want to <laughs> say in wrapping up? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I would just close with, Trust that God's system of welfare actually is powerful to keep its promise, which was, if you do all that I've commanded you, and this was directly after the giving the three tithes in Deuteronomy 15, if you do all that I command you, there will be no poor among you. And that historically, that actually happened once in Israel's history. It happened during the Maccabean period where the poor tithe exceeded the poor and it ended up going into the storehouse. Wow. So it wasn't in David or Solomon. It was in the Maccabean period in between the Testaments. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It, they, they had so much. I think it was like uh, the, the record is 800 gold or 800 somethings of silver into the storehouse because the the poor tithe was one so abundant because there were so many productive, you know, essentially so many productive people in the society. Plus, the poor were being taken care of by poor loans and gleaning and other things like that, employment. And so that's the one. Have hope, and and don't let the Jesus's criticism of the bureaucratic Judeans who were ruling over Jerusalem and were messing with the banking. They inflated the shekel price to, you had to get one temple shekel. You had to give two shekels, but you had to use temple shekel in the temple. Right. Or the fact that, um, you know, how they did Corbin, uh, the money that they were supposed to assist their parents with. And they said, well, it's Corbin. It's for God. They did the same thing with poor loans. They would give out a poor loan or even a normal loan, and they're supposed to forgive it on the seventh year. And then what they do is they would transfer it to the Sanhedrin. And then because it was God's money, they couldn't forgive the loan. Well, guess who was in control of the Sanhedrin? All the people on the Sanhedrin. So essentially, they protected their financial interests. So Josephus talks all about the wickedness or the fact that at the temple, they would resell the same animal to be sacrificed five, six, seven times and not actually sacrifice it. So in that case, they're actually denying atonement there, you know, the covering of sin because they weren't actually sacrificing the animal. And it's to them, it's, it's to Judas, whose name, Iscariot, means son of Cariot, which is a city in Judea. Judas is the only Judean. He represents all of the bureaucratic evil of Jerusalem. And he says to him, the poor will always be with you. That was actually a curse on unbelieving Jerusalem. That wasn't a universal rule to apply to all of time. The universal rule to apply all of time is God's promise of his covenant, which is if you're faithful to obey what I've commanded you. There will be no poor among you. I don't know if you've read the book, The Makers versus the Takers by Jerry Bowyer, but you just summarized like half the book. Yeah. Yes. Yep. I've read it. It's very okay. good. Yeah. That's really, that's a really good book. And I'm just thinking about now, if you're doing the poor tithe in your nation and mm -hmm. you get to that point, like Israel during the Maccabean period. Mm -hmm. Then would that be you start helping out the poor nations around you with the excess or would they try to keep it for if there are poor in the future? What would that look like? If you have access, then you can totally go beyond your geographical boundaries. But I think, I think one thing is with the picture you just gave is start with your cul-de-sac, right? Start with your neighborhood or wherever your local parish is or your local church and that general community and say, like, let's just get here, you know? And I, I think because as post-millennialists and theonomists, we get really pumped about the big picture, right? 
like Christian society. And so we get super engaged about like what sanctions still apply. Like, you know, the honest love talking about civil sanctions, you know, what gets a death penalty, you know, that's really thing that especially new ones like to nerd out about, but I'm always like, whoa, whoa, whoa you're jumping the gun. We live in a pagan nation. That's awful. <laughs> Let's focus on the laws that like we can apply now. So I would say if you, if you get your neighborhood or the place where your parish is, at that point, you start looking out and you say, okay, where are, where's the next city over the next town over? Then you start to go, okay, where's what, what's in the County. And, you know, come up with the ethical unity, you know, mere Christianity type of stuff, network with other churches, you know, can they affirm correctly the contents of the apostles creed, the Nicene creed, the Athanasian creed, and uh, get together and start networking in how the people of those churches and the churches themselves can be implementing their resources to so that there'll be no poor among you uh, and don't become like this centralized agency that takes the money from all those people and implements it, but actually train one another up as many societies, right? Those synagogues of Christ and, and start applying it. So I would say do it as individuals in your community. If you have Christians, like you're not super connected or you're, or you're still trying to find that church or wherever you're at in that limbo period find other christians in your community talk to them about the tithe if you're convinced of it uh encourage them and then show them what you do try to encourage them to do it talk to your churches about it and uh just shoot for neighborhoods first and then expand out and i think the same thing when you have that mindset would apply nationally as well yeah that's really good um so unless there's anything else you want to add, I'm probably going to go out and wrap yep. up. Oh yeah. Tell them about some of your books and your website and things like that before we close. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I occasionally do a guest post for Cruciform Ministries. Really cool place. Check them out. I've done a couple of talks there. I've actually done a talk on biblical welfare and it essentially was a long, um, explanation, exposition, application of the three tithes for the church today, um, go through each one, why they still apply today. You know, it more than I assumed it in this conversation, I talk more about why in that talk. And you can find that on Cruciform Ministries uh, YouTube channel. I also blog at my own website, Reformed Expressions. It's very sporadic. If you want to see a theonomic post-millennial reconstructionist interpretation of Ecclesiastes. Uh, basically, I believe that book is a giant powerhouse against humanism on a social scale. And I think that's what the writer is dealing with. So uh, if you want to see that, you can check that out there. If you want to email me about, uh, before I even, uh, my books, just look up Matthew Belville or type in your neighbor and praising God. You'll find me on Amazon. But more importantly, if you want, if anything, like any inkling of you is wanting to try to practice this, put implementation, you have questions about how to set up applications in your community, what you can fund, how to fund it, email me at matt at reformedexpressions.com and, and just tell me about what you're trying to do. And I, I love doing that. And I can send you a worksheet on helping you diagnose your local area and different things like that. Yeah, that's really cool. Amount of good stuff to keep in mind for just seeing what a Christian nation would look like on the micro level of just your neighborhood or your zip code or your city. So I hope this episode gave you all a lot to think about. It gave me a lot to think about just while we were recording it here. Uh, so any last comments you want to make, Matt? Man, just work and uh, thank God for what you can do where you're at and trust that he will grow it and he establishes your work. Amen. Well, thanks for listening to this episode, everyone, and have a great day. So thank you everyone for listening to that interview. I hope it was beneficial and it gave you some things to think about because it gave me personally a lot of things to think about. 
some things I was thinking about even then as we were recording the episode. I think you might have caught on to that a little bit. Anyways, as we go, I want to remind everyone that the law of the Lord is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. So go apply that law in light of the gospel of Christ's atoning death and resurrection to every area of life. Grace and peace. More than silver or pain.